Now then, you'll all remain seated. Anybody who tries to rise is going to get shot. 1.45 p.m. Four desperate, heavily armed men seize control of the train. Open the door or I'll blow your head off. Take you know something, people? You're going to be remembered the rest of your lives for the day you got held up and kidnapped. I mean, I don't know about that guy out there. It's all a whim. Rob a bank. I had a plan. I had a plan. I have made myself understood. Will you keep away from this bank or we're going to start throwing bodies out the front door one at a time? I'm a Catholic and I don't want to hurt anybody, understand? Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise, and at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Do it! We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we've been doing for over a year. So if you haven't made the jump, there's a lot of we bonus have episodes waiting here. over episodes now? Yeah, well, I think only like 30 or 40 of bonus ones there, but that's oh, sure. how many are waiting for you. Speaking of which, we do have two patrons to thank this week, and those are Jesse Stringer and Joey Carlo. So thanks Thank so much, much for guys. being with us and hope you're enjoying the bonus episodes. Uh, the other plug for the week, always iTunes. If you guys are listening on iTunes, you've been digging the show. Give us a good old rating and review over there. It helps us find new listeners and we appreciate that as well. Please do. Uh, those are your plugs for the week. Uh, I'm your host, as always, Josh Lewis, and joining me. Jamie Miller, welcome back. Welcome back. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you guys, free listeners, would have heard from us. And we had... Twitter shit poster visionary thinker Nick Yusin on <laughs> to do a uh, 90s erotic thriller double feature of To Die For 1995 Gus Van Sant starring Nicole Kidman hell of a performance by Kidman uh, yeah a total barn burner performance by her and we paired it with 1998's A Perfect Murder with uh, Michael Douglas Our boy. Petro, Viggo Mortensen <laughs> uh, two very different movies about a, spi- a spouse trying to murder their fellow spouse. Uh, so if you haven't heard that episode, that was two weeks ago. That was uh, any podcast listener of choice that's available on. Uh, but last week, for patrons, your guys' bonus episode, we went uh, for the second time uh, on the show, we went into spaghetti western territory. We did Sergio Carbucci double feature, Django 1966, uh, and The Great Silence 19. 19- 60 heavy hitters, which is a really, really heavy film that saw Corbucci uh, dealing with the pain of the deaths of, I believe he said it was Martin Luther and Malcolm X that inspired him to make that film about sort of systemic violence and trying to resist it. Oh, wow. So pretty brutal film. Yes. Uh, pretty pretty dense. Uh, and again, if you want that episode, patreon.com slash Lezoids podcast. That was last week's episode. But this week. We have a very special guest, I guess I'm very excited to have on. One, because I think he's a cool guy. And number two, uh, <laughs> he produced one of my favorite films from just last year Yeah, that made my top ten. I ended up writing about it for the film stage uh, as best also directorial features of last year overall. Um, and that was the film Blind Spotting. And he also happens to be the producer on, uh, for sure, one of my favorite genre films of the decade, which makes him perfect for the show. And that film was The Guest, starring Dan Stevens as well. That Regular producer film. for Simon Barrett and Adam Wingard. We have Keith Calder. Keith, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm glad to be here, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for coming, for coming on. on. We're really excited to have you here. But Keith, 
as the show goes, we have our guest pick the two films that they want to double feature for us. So why don't you tell us what those two films are, why you've paired them together? Sure. You know, I picked uh, Dog Day Afternoon and taking of Pelham 123, the original, not the remake. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I initially, when you reached out to me, I, I initially started going through a lot of my sleazier sort of film ideas, and a lot of them were taken already. Uh, oh, damn. Like, which one? Which so, one was taken? Well, where I started with this was I wanted to do uh, Assault on Precinct 13, oh, um, nice. which I love and I think is an amazing movie. Um, and then thinking about that, I was thinking, oh, that would pair well with taking a Pelham one, two, three. Um, and then I re- when I realized that Assault was taken already, I was like, well, looks like taking a Pelham is still here. Um, and I tried to think of a good match for that. Uh, and that's where I, I came up with Dog Day Afternoon, because I, I feel like they both deal in very different ways with heists that are set in New York City in the in the 70s in a way that really feels like they capture an aspect of New York that that um, um, that's gone these days that I kind of wanted to, to kind of revisit and um, and I think um, they're just I really love that both movies start right into the heist and then the story unfolds in really a contained space in a, in a very quick um, period of time I feel like that's something that I'm drawn to a lot in my own work. Um, like a lot of the movies that I've produced are are very contained geographically and also yeah. um, take place over over sometimes almost real time, like very, very um, short periods of time. And there's something I always find interesting about that and, and how you take uh, constraints and make them cinematic. So I, for, for purely selfish reasons, I wanted to go back and <laughs> watch these two movies to kind of pick, steal some more tricks from them. Nice. No, absolutely. No, I to- to- totally agree. I think that this has a very, uh, watching both films, I was actually watching both for the first time, which is a little sacrilegious. Usually usually that's Jamie's role on the yeah, show. That's, that's he's my the, role. He's the one who hasn't seen a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, but for me, I really needed to, to kick these off. And immediately I was like, oh, there's a, a mood and an atmosphere of uh, early 70s New York City happening here that they mm. both share but with very different um, sort of storytelling executions to get across different ideas. Um, So uh, that being said, I think that that's as good as any intros we're going to get. So I think we're going to jump into it. We are going to talk first, Dog Day Afternoon. What are you doing down here? Run. 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 Where am I going to run? Algeria. Algeria? Yeah, they got to have a Johnson's there, so I'm going. One. We get a helicopter here. Two. Takes us to a jet. Three. I'm flying to the tropics. We did it. Al Pacino. Dog Day Afternoon. A true story. All right, we are talking Dog Day Afternoon, the 1975 American crime drama film directed by one Sidney Lumet. You might have heard of this man. (laughs) Written by uh, Frank Pearson. Uh, I believe Oscar-winning screenplay, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, The film... Obviously, for I mean, I'm assuming a lot of people have seen this one, but we always start for people who haven't, just in case. Hopefully, you guys are watching along. That's what we structure the show to be. That's why we announce everything in advance. Um, but the film stars Al Pacino as uh, Sonny Wartzik, um, who was based on a uh, real would-be Brooklyn bank robber by the name, I believe, of it was uh, John Wachowitz, I believe was his name, uh, and his sort of uh, robbery and partner in crime, that was Salvatore Naturale. Um, and Sonny and Sal both decide, uh, the film opens with them immediately, as Keith already pointed out, starting their heist. 
and it begins kind of going a little bit farcically wrong, yeah. pretty much right off <laughs> right the start. Off the bat. Um, and I, yeah. I also love just like Pacino's intro. He, you can already tell that he's kind of just like sh- kind of strung out in a, in a sense, just very, fr- uh, you know, it's, he looks exhausted just even going into the, into the heist, let alone afterwards. Yeah. I feel like this film has a pressure cooker that existed before the film started. <laughs> yes, and after exactly. it ends. Exactly. Uh, Which that, I, I think that opening, like the opening, opening, opening is just an incredible montage of summer in New York in, in the 1970s right. that I think you, you feel sweaty, like <laughs> by the time you even realize that, uh, uh, you're you're into the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get kind of everyone doing their, you know, their sort of like regular working class routine set to like Elton John's. I think it's Amarina is the song that's mm-hmm. that's that's playing at the time. Um so you get kind of like almost like him trying to do like a country blues type thing that's going on. <laughs> uh which which is an interesting sound for him and an interesting sound uh to match the imagery. Yeah. Um and sort of immediately this this uh, robbery goes wrong, it turns sour, it escalates, and it escalates into, uh, by happenstance, into a hostage situation in a standoff with the police that kind of takes place, I think, over, I don't know if it's like just a single day or if it's, uh, I think it is actually, up yeah, until I the think, evening. Yeah. I think yeah. it was like a 14-hour day mm-hmm. or something like that, 14-hour sequence. Yes, and basically over the course of the movie, uh, Lumet and Pearson just kind of complicate the protagonists in ways that you wouldn't necessarily uh, expect of another heist siege film. I mean, Keith mentioned that he thought about pairing Taking with Assault on Precinct 13, and I think that that has a certain character richness to it, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't as based in kind of, I think, like the class reality that this one sets up for you. I was quite shocked. I mean, maybe not quite shocked because I know this film's reputation, but (laughs) (laughs) uh, I, I was immediately zoned into, oh, this is shot and staged as sort of like a genre heist movie might be. And very quickly, this film sort of sheds that to get more into a sense of a sort of class drama with with Sonny and Sal, where you really feel for kind of all of the pressures that they're experiencing. Yeah, his Um, his mask of a bank robber pretty much immediately slips as soon as it begins. You start to see the heist as kind of like a symptom of a city. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is a really interesting frame that both uh, in in the screenplay and that really that Sidney Lumet hammers home by kind of like letting a lot of these characters have their moments to reveal their complexities to you. I mean, this really starts to rival the idea of Stockholm Syndrome in the actual case that brought that about where the hostages start kind of like actually um, aligning in interest with their captors. Yeah, um, there was actually a real quote from one of the hostages in the article oh, yeah. that apparently said, if they were my house guests, they would have been hilarious. <laughs> 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 so they definitely got along with them <laughs> yes. for the most part. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, I guess because that's based on, it's based on the the Boys in the Bank, the Life Magazine article, yeah. that's the article you're yeah. referring to, Yes. But yeah, I will say that I was, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming Keith, you were too, since you brought the film on, but I was in, uh, incredibly moved by this movie. Yes. Yeah. No, I think it's, 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 it's amazing how they sneak up the character work on you over the course of the movie when, when it starts really as, as a, as a pretty, pretty straight heist right at the beginning. Um, and then by, by the end, I mean, there's, I didn't time them out, but there's a couple phone call scenes that feel like they're 10 minutes long. I mean, it's oh, yeah. really... Yeah, I mean, really gets down into into really incredible detailed character work um, in the script and the performances. It's it's pretty. Yeah, it's a beautiful movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I I was impressed particularly because it's it's. <laughs> 
while this heist is unfolding, it has a lot of comedic elements to it, mostly because I think just the characters have personality in a way that differentiates them, you know, from, you know, more stock characters that you might find in another heist film. It also Um, comes off as the, they, they didn't plan this entirely meticulously. It seems like some of it was last minute. You know, I mean, we have that great sequence when he comes in and he's trying to spray paint the the cameras and he can't reach, so he yeah. has to grab a chair. And, you know, I love not, that it feels it feels when it starts like they they think they've planned this perfectly. Yeah, like they yeah. are coming into the bank like we got this, we got it figured out. Yeah, it's hot and sweaty, and I'm a little nervous, but we got a plan, and it's it's gone immediately. Yeah, even even when uh, Pacino first brings out the gun, he has trouble because it gets wrapped around the gun itself. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. right off the bat, it's kind of this like unhinged performance where he's just trying to get his shit together. Well, yeah, no, and, and it's awesome because like that detail is what really makes this movie sing. Is that yeah, you know, the idea yeah. that someone like the real issues that someone would have of the logistics yeah. <laughs> of pulling off a heist like you you know you wouldn't think like you could plan it as much as you want but you wouldn't think oh man the gun is actually going to be harder to pull out of my pocket if i put it in that way or <laughs> yeah. like you know like that's yeah. just something you can't plan for yeah um and i love the guy who just abandons right off the start he's like i got yeah. bad vibes dude and pacino's <laughs> like we already got the guns out man <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's done like you could have expressed this like five minutes ago when we were in the car <laughs> yeah. i also love that he uh he asks to take the car he's just like well how am i gonna get home you know it's just like subway dude (laughs) you can tell that that character was the uh the young innocent one that kind of just got you know thrown into this situation i mean he didn't even think about the getaway vehicle it's pretty funny yeah and 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 i I love and i love that pacino is normal voice pacino not not the sort of like husky deep like movie star version of pacino he became later oh yeah it's kind of boyish yeah, no, he's he's got his his normal kind of speaking voice in the higher register, and it, it, he feels so much more like a real human being um, than than how how he turns into later in Screw, which is this kind of big movie star thing. Like right now, this is this is like the 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 pure emotional human character Al Pacino, which is my favorite version of Pacino. Oh yeah. yeah. And he I, has some and he, great ticks. Like he's got an eye twitch that comes out every once in oh, a while yeah. and stuff. His attention to just small character that guy's got a lot of stress yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) and he and and i really like that he is like a really like complex like thorny protagonist when you get down to it like i mean Mm. like they don't shy away from you know he he does some bad things in his life and he has some pressures that are within his control and outside of his control and you just see a guy who's just completely overwhelmed trying to manage them and also do a heist because money would help alleviate some of those problems Um, and and i love that he does point out right off the bat that he's worked at a bank yeah and that's that's how he knows how to do all of this stuff he's just like i know about the weighted drawers i know the marked money like don't mess with me (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> and I love that it's doing that. That detail is doing the double purpose of of the 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 story work it's doing. But then it's also setting up to the tellers that he's one of them. Like exactly. so later, like yeah. th- this idea of of that Stockholm syndrome is is not a typical Stockholm syndrome because th- in a weird way they relate more with him than they do with the police that are trying to rescue them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just very interesting. 
Yeah, no, it's a really interesting dynamic that builds between them because, I mean, there, there's an especially telling conversation. I mean, once this typically, as can be expected, it turns into a media circus where everyone's like, there's a huge hostage situation happening yeah. in Brooklyn. We got to we got to deal with this. I do love the sight gag of there just being like 4,000 police officers. <laughs> yeah. They were like, there's no one else have anything to do with New York right at the now. same spot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, and it's, it's funny how they're no longer there once they actually need them. Like when they start doing the driving later and they're getting like heckled and attacked and stuff like yeah. the police aren't there for that part but they're there for the part where they can maybe shoot some people yeah uh, <laughs> and i think um, this i don't know i mean i obviously don't know the history of all cinema but i i, I it's the first time i remember seeing a high scene where you you see a news report happening and the video and he's doing an interview and he can watch himself on tv as he's giving the interview and there's something that feels very like that's the first version of the present version of how these things would happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, a hundred percent. And that, that's actually the scene that I was going to jump to because that's an amazing, um, scene where he gets on the phone. I think it's with like, sort of like, uh, the, the, presumably like the, presumably, like the use, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the exact mm-hmm. producer of like the broadcasting, whoever's, yeah. whoever's putting on the, the, the show right now. And he has a he has a call, and they were like, "Okay, so why are you doing this?" He's like, "What do, what do you mean? Why am I doing this? Like, I need, I need money. <laughs> yeah, like, it, there's why, money inside. Why else bank. do people rob banks?" And he's like, "Okay, why don't you get a job?" And he's just like, "Well, I'm not part of a union, and in order to get a, a job that actually pays me enough that I can live and afford the things that I need, um, I need a union job." And they were just like, "Well, why don't you get a non?" And he's like, "A non-union job." He was like, "Ask these tellers. How much do you make? Is that enough yeah. to pay for your shit?" Like, he's he immediately starts aligning himself that way, and then I love that immediately he gets so pissed off at the line of questioning about why he needs money that he goes how much do you make you know and and he's just like how much are you going to get paid for filming my death kind of (laughs) deal you know and it's it's a a really great sequence where you know it's obviously targeting you know kind of the sort of sensationalist aspect that we would look at this and also i think it's really important because the film largely breaks down to we care about some of these issues or the sensationalized symptoms of these issues but less the actual realities that would cause them to, you know, arise. Like mm-hmm. a lot of Sonny's problems are things that could be dealt with, um, but instead nobody cared until he started robbing a bank to deal with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. and, and until he starts sort of like upsetting the current order of things. Again, this, this movie itself coming out in 75, and I mean, the story took place in 1972. It does have a bit of a sort of a countercultural attitude to it. I mean, obviously, we eventually get into reveals about Sonny's sexuality that sort right. of mirror the... And I mean, yeah. the very reasons that they're doing these this heist in the first place. I mean, I believe Sonny's reason is to pay for uh, his... Uh, it's uh, I don't know if it's like a, a a lover that his wife didn't know about or I th- something I think, like that. I think it's his second wife. I think it's established that they got oh. married. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. yeah. So it's so it's so it's his wife's sex reassignment surgery. Right. And so yeah. and I believe uh, Sal. Now this is I don't think that this is told in the in the film, but yeah. I just I did some some history. Review. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> and uh, apparently Sal was actually trying to get uh, money to. Um, pay for his siblings care because he had a very alcoholic and negligent mother and so these these two people are doing this for very just reasons rather than just you know i'm robbing a bank because you know i need i just need money and i need riches right like i need to get out yeah Yeah, these are very personable things that they're doing them for right and 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 like that there's a there's a really interesting irony to that too, because the character that that Pacino plays, the real life version of him, he was robbing the bank for for his his girlfriend's uh, sexual reassignment surgery, mm-hmm. and you know obviously he he got he went to jail, he got arrested, he didn't 
you know, wasn't able to to use the money he robbed the bank to pay for it. But when the movie was made, they made a life rights deal with him. And he used that money to pay for the sexual reassignment yeah, surgery. Yeah, that's an amazing Which is incredible. Yeah. Which is incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. Like, in a way, the bank robbery led directly to him being able to pay for the sexual reassignment <laughs> yeah. So he pulled it off. He pulled yeah. it off. Heist successful just yeah. six years later. And, yeah. and, and his relationship with Leon when it's introduced later in the film. I mean, because it, it's obviously introduced that obviously everyone is immediately scornful of his sexuality, yeah. like right off right. the start. All of a sudden, everyone's like, yeah, you've been kind of a working class hero for a little bit here, shouting Attica, Attica, which was obviously the reference to the 1971 Attica prison riots, right. which is interesting because I also believe that Sal talks about not ever wanting to go to prison again. Yeah. And, the, yeah. and the Attica prison riots, the whole point was, you know, um, um, protesting prison conditions and yeah. sort of like human rights violations and things like this. Um, so uh, the the idea that like th- these guys actually are part of these struggles, but as soon as they add like a queer struggle into it, then all the people outside are kind of like, we don't want any yeah. part of this. Like this guy's yeah. a loser or yeah. whatever. And it's revealed in a really complicated and probably one of the most heartbreaking scenes when they speak on the phone that Sonny's actually like a domestic abuser. Yeah. And that yeah. and that Leon is was was not only suicidal um, because obviously of body dys- dys- dysmorphia and like what she's trying to, um, you know, get the surgery for, but also because Sonny is violent. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the phone call that they have, which just has, you know, so much pain and heartache between the two of them where he's like. I couldn't stand seeing you try to commit suicide. So like, I'm doing this for you. And she's just like, I really am grateful for that, (laughs) but also like, you've really hurt me. Uh, and just like the history that is carried in like that. I think he's right. I think it's like a 10 minute conversation that they have on the phone in the middle of the movie. Um, and the performance by Chris Sarandon as Leon in that moment too. Unbelievable watching those two. I also found it uh, quite sad that, you know, as it's clear that, uh, that that Sonny is pretty delusional in regards to how the cops are working him, you know, like how they're they're manipulating. <laughs> Don't try to con him. me. Yeah, I think like, that's what he said. <laughs> and in that uh, during that phone call, he thinks that he's having just a conversation with mm-hmm. with with yeah. his with his uh, his wife or ex wife, I guess. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> complicated relationship. He, he, there. Yeah, this guy's got some complicated <laughs> relationships, but. Uh, so I'll just say his wife. Uh, so with his wife, and he thinks that it's just a conversation between them. But the but the wife knows that the cops are are also listening in and using that for information. Mm-hmm. And there's this uh, a point where he even calls his wife out for that, and then afterwards just believes that they're not listening in anymore, yeah, which yeah, I exactly. found very interesting. Yeah. Like he's kind of like, there we go. I took care of it. They're off the line now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's and like, oh, I'm right. Funny. I believe you totally. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Because as this goes on, I just kept thinking, I'm like, dude, they're not going to let you go. Like, he's like, it's going to be fine. We're going to get a big jet. We're going to uh, Algeria. It's going to be great. (laughs) Oh, my God. What an amazing detail when he's just like, because Sal, what's interesting about Sal is that Sal is clearly sort of like the ticking time bomb of the film. Mm -hmm. Um, He's very quiet and he's very clearly been very um, damaged and victimized. And he's very terrified at the idea of going back to prison so much so that early on in the film, he tells Sonny, like, look, 
if you want to kill these people and throw their bodies out, like that is preferable to me than going to prison. And I am okay to do that. And yeah. it's obviously a horrifying thing for someone to say. Absolutely. Um, and then at the, at the same time, you start to get after that. You, Cause that, it's pretty crazy that they introduce you to Sal that way. Yeah. And then over the course of the film, they really make you feel from him and understand where he's coming from. Uh, not yeah. with the idea of murder, but with <laughs> how someone's brain could get to that point with right. all of this, you know, with all these different sort of forces crushing him. Um, and the bit where he confronts Sal and he's just, he's trying to calm Sal down. He's just like, look, we can get out of here. You're not going to prison. I promise you, we are going to get out of here. And he was like, look, if you said this went sour, like we were just going to shoot our way out or we were going to die. Like that was it. And he's just like, no, look, we can talk with them. We can figure it out. Yeah. We can go anywhere. He's like, use your imagination. Where do you want to go? He's like, motherfucking Wyoming. Wyoming, baby. <laughs> His country of choice. After Al Pacino's like, we could go to the tropics. I'm thinking about going to Algeria. Yeah. <laughs> really funny. Such, also. To me, that's such an incredible New York detail, too, though. Oh, yeah. The idea that that you don't, I mean, what is Wyoming to you? If you live, you've lived your life in New York City, like that, that is a distant country. It is not the same country you're in, even though, of course, it is. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, it's such a great detail. Um, I also find it funny that Sonny wants to go to Algeria because, I mean, we, we've talked about yes. Battle of Algiers on this show. That was like shortly after that stuff happened. <laughs> yeah. So we were yeah. like, you really want to go to like a political revolution? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, but yeah, this the situation kind of gets uh, the movie is mostly kind of like a series of kind of like quirky interactions between Sonny and like the police negotiator. These are great. Yeah. Great, I loved every, great every shouting conversation, matches. especially the one where, uh, Sonny believes that the, the cops were coming up from the, the rear end of the building. And so they fire <laughs> like a warning shot. Yeah. And I found out that that is the majority of that is actually improvised. So that kind of like really free flowing feel that that uh, that sequence gives, yeah. where they're just yelling at each other sporadically, <laughs> it's completely real. Like they're just trying to, you know, it's all improvisation. Yeah, so they're, they're one upping each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's but that, that, that whole was great. section that starts, bef- you know, starting before that when they're in the bank, and it's like the quietest, stillest moment of the film. Basically, it's just them in the heat in this bank, and it's shot in these long takes of them all in there. And then, um, you know, Pacino goes to the back because it's so hot, the air conditioning's out, and he's going to try to figure it out. And as soon as he realizes something's happening at the back, it is one of the most incredibly edited, chaotic sequences of, of all of this reaction as he shoots out the window, all the cops' reaction, the crowd's reaction. It just goes from this incredibly long takes, really long, like kind of getting you into this specific area. And then uh, we, we should talk. I mean, the D.D. Allen is probably one of the best editors of all time. And and you see that work throughout this movie. It's amazing how much they play with that um, long takes, long kind of getting you to settle into this thing. And then he's really fast edits, almost like, like way ahead of where you think cinema was at that time. Just really kind of like getting, getting really that crazy thing. And then going from that into this like improv actor to actor thing like this, there's <laughs> yeah. just so many, so many techniques and letter just at total mastery levels in this movie. Yeah, um, no, it, it, it completely switches from like kind of like these calm interactions where these people are sort of identifying with each other and getting along with each other. And I mean, I love that the they all the tellers start like joking around about the one who's prudish and doesn't want to swear. And, like, <laughs> they, you know, like they, they're just having like very normal interactions. And, you know, it's it's seemingly kind of calming for Sonny and Sal. 
And then, yeah, yeah immediately they feel threatened. And that kind of like paranoid energy just like takes over the filmmaking yeah. Um, yeah. as as like, you know, everything starts getting kind of like jumbled up and he's rushing to the front. He's yelling his ass off. Uh, and I mean, he's very distrustworthy of everyone outside and, and you know, not completely unfoundedly. Um, <laughs> but it, it is to a level where it's like he he has he sees all the ways that this could go wrong and he's trying to avoid them as much as possible. But also he seems like he's also a bit of a, like a, like a playful asshole about it too. Yeah. Like that one, that, that one, which is really scary. Uh, when he sends the African American guy out, who's kind of like yeah. sick or the first hostage, oh, he yeah. the first hostage he sends out. He, yeah. He, he sends and him they all out assume be, that he's the well, yeah. because they, uh, yeah. they assumed that a girl was getting let out and yeah. the cops immediately, start trying to shoot him because they think that it's like a, that it's Al Pacino's character. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they were like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, hold your fire. Uh, and, yeah. and, and obviously it's a, a huge systemic problem that the first reaction for the police would be to just shoot this guy down immediately. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's like Sonny would be aware of that. Yeah. Uh, and, and he even goes, he does, I mean, we got to talk a little bit about, you know, all these New York accents are really great as they go through <laughs> them, but he's just like, that was pretty smart or whatever that he says. Yeah. <laughs> and it's oh, like, it's, yeah, it's, smart, it, just, you know, very risky of someone else's life in that particular situation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my favorite, my favorite Stockholm syndrome moment is, and it's basically in the background is where Pacino gives his gun to one of the tellers to show them how to do Marine start like military oh, yeah. drills. And you're just like, this is crazy. Like they, they've formed such a bond that he's literally giving the hostage his, his like assault rifle to teach her how to do Marine, uh, uh, like dance moves basically. Yeah. Which, and that tool is the one thing you would assume is, is keeping her from yeah, revolting. Yeah. And now yeah. she has it. <laughs> and it's, yeah. 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 yeah it, it just shows you how fast everyone immediately kind of relates to Sonny and Sal's struggles and they understand, yeah. you know, they're like, maybe I wouldn't go and rob a bank. But right. it starts to make sense why someone in that situation would rob a bank and why they would feel mm. that desperate. And yeah. I mean, that that kind of like unhinged raw nerve sweatiness is right there from the beginning. So like that desperation, you feel it like the second the movie opens. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, all the movie does is just kind of slowly contextualize it for you. It, slows, it starts to reveal where it's come from, how it's been brought I, about, why it hasn't you, been stopped yet. Yeah. Have you guys seen Cool Hand Luke? No, no, I still haven't. Seen oh that one my god! Okay, so <laughs> that that if we were to add a third movie, we could have added that. But that that's uh, Frank Pearson's other like big script that he wrote, and it's it, as an anti-establishment movie, it goes so hand in hand with 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 this one. And and um, oh yeah, yeah, that's your that's your homework after this episode. You got to oh watch yeah, cool. absolutely. absolutely. No, we're taking the recommendation. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, just the way that, I mean, again, this would have, a lot of this stuff, I mean, in 75, it would have been a little bit more talked about, but when the situation went down in 72, this would have been during huge countercultural movements. I mean, the, yeah. the, yeah. the, the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement would have been 68 and 69, and also, I mean, Stonewall was 69, which is how you get the queer struggle in here as well, um, yeah. and then obviously they'd name drop Attica over and over yeah. again, which was yeah. 1971, um, and it was, you can see that they're kind of getting the riotous people on their side who are in interested in this um and what's fascinating is that the second some of the rioters turn on him because of his sexuality all of a sudden he has sort of like gay activists show up and start cheering yep. sunny on on the <laughs> yeah. sidelines and stuff like that um and it's amazing how they harness that energy and that energy that they you you know form in the crowd is really the only thing that stops the police from coming in and shooting them 
Um, yeah, completely. Because because yeah. it would be such a public massacre yeah, they, of likable people. Yeah, it's almost a guarantee that they're only viewing it as like that'd be bad optics. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> oh, if yeah. we just went in no, and they, slaughtered them. <laughs> they have to get them to the airport so they can shoot them. Yeah, exactly. Which I it's mean, because they can't do it in front of that crowd and in front of the press and all of that. Exactly. Yeah. Which will exactly. probably angle towards this this finale here, but. This is just horrifying. Yeah, this um, is so sad the, to watch. Uh, and I mean, the way that Al Pacino calibrates his performance in this moment, too, where he has he's very clearly reassuring Sal yep. that this thing that you knew was going to happen this whole time isn't going to happen. I promise. We figured it out. There's They don't have to do it anymore. We're done. Yep. We're going to let everyone out. We're going to get our trip out of here. That's it. It's over. Um, um, and I mean, this also follows him. Um, where you don't fully, you, you feel like Sonny is kind of weaponizing this on, on Sal because he doesn't want Sal to freak out. And also he thinks it might work, but he's also left a will in case it doesn't work because he's not fully <laughs> yeah. convinced. And yeah. the will scene, my God, also, um, again, it, it feels just like the phone conversation where it's just heartbreaking. I mean, the, the idea that someone would leave their life insurance policy and leave it for his wife's um, reassignment surgery that he does. He's just like, look, I'm not worth much. I'm probably worth like $10,000. Leave seven of that for, um, you know, my current wife and leave the rest for my previous wife and kids. Yeah. And the fact that that is actually a better out for him than, you know, actually finding a job of any sort. The fact that there's a society that's like that yeah, <laughs> is yeah. a problem. And it's, I mean, it's something that I, we, you know, we really still haven't dealt with, uh, but it's so fascinating to go back and watch it and see how in the conversation this was, even in, you know, the, the early seventies in, in, in New you, York. Do you also think that I, I, th- I read it a bit as even though he's constantly reassuring Sal, mm-hmm. that scene when he made the will seemed to signify that he doesn't really believe that it's going to work out for him. Yeah. I think, uh, uh, th- th- I think th- he's almost trying yeah. to delude himself too, I, the whole time. I think time. that that's partially true. I think it's a and little bit I think bit underneath of he really knows that I think he's, I think he's preparing that this situation yeah. could still go wrong, but he's and he's really trying to put on a performance for Sal of like, we got this, We're going to be okay. We're going to yeah. be okay. Come on, Sal, look. We're getting there. We're going to Wyoming or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which is just, you know, um, and then as they drive them there, there's that cop in the front with the detail who's always like, point that gun up, point that yeah. gun up. And you know where that's leading. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I, I thought it was that's a legitimate concern where it was like, yeah, you wouldn't want Sal's gun going off. But then, you know, as they start making eyes at each other and, you know, the, the tension right. kind of starts to build and there's that really, really heartwarming moment where the one hostage gives his ro- her rosary beads to um, Sal, being yeah. like, because he mentions er- he, he mentions earlier in the film that he's really scared of the idea of taking a plane. He's never been on a plane. He couldn't afford to take a plane right. anywhere. Yeah. Um, and he's like, here, for good luck for your first plane ride. And he seems like reassured by that. And again, uh, Keith was pointing out the editing in this, but the editing in this sequence where you get the look on these faces um, as Sonny is kind of watching this unfold and as the officers are waiting for their opportune moment to pull out a gun yeah. and just shoot Sal in the back like a dog. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's yeah. the, it's the only you- actual murder that takes place in this movie because the situation was over with. The hostages were out. Yeah. They yeah. were good. It was over. And instead, they still decided to just point blank shoot Sal. Yeah, and it, and it seems pretty obvious they could have waited till they were out of the van and just arrested the man. You yeah. Know, at the very, at the very least. Yeah. 
Because it, it is. It's it's painted. And I, I looked it up, and that's pretty much how it went down. Oh, and, really? Yeah, yeah. I, didn't, yeah. I didn't look at the article. The only but thing that's... that was different is they didn't they didn't get him in the head. They got him in the chest, mm. which, I mean, I could argue might have even been worse because he had to suffer a chest wound. Uh, right, it wasn't like an instant so, but, but, I mean, regardless, it was that cold, and... Uh, and it's it's really sad it's it's very sad because you you spend two hours with this guy you know understanding his motivations and and his past and just seeing him as a human being and then they just they they slaughter him like an animal you know? yeah and the exact thing that they were you know sort of like resisting kind of just is reinstated they were just like right. everyone goes back to their jobs nothing happened here yeah everything's fine yeah yeah. This is the way that just the world is, folks. Yeah. When you just you you know that you're watching this movie, that there's all kinds of Sonny and Sal's out there in the world that are just, you know, one desperate moment away from, you know, needing real help. These people just needed help. Yeah. And exactly. you know, so it was it was it was a you know, and again, they both mentioned that they're Vietnam War veterans too. So again, it's just yeah, skills. that's a big and for me yeah. and for me too, there was a bit of coldness just I mean, you know, it, the the age isn't that big of a, a a thing, but the real Sal was actually eighteen. Oh my god! So you know, it, it's not like it's a big difference. Obviously, violence is violence and brutality is brutality. But it's just like an eighteen year old, like a teenager. You, yeah. you just point blank in the. It's just it's just cold. The system that needs to be changed. <laughs> Good lord. Yeah. No. Ab- absolutely, Keith. Any thoughts on the the ending? I know it's it's a uh, yeah it's a brutal ending and it 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 yeah. really yeah it hits hard yeah well because I mean the the look on Pacino's face and everything as he's just I it, it's not that, quite it's disbelief like, because he's it feels like he was prepared for it but yeah. it still feels like feel, he was still shocked there, obviously too <laughs> like a because it felt like I don't I don't know exactly who came up with the plan but it's it definitely felt like Sonny was the the head of mm-hmm. the of the group so yeah. I I bet there was some some guilt he felt. In, in that regard, even though it's, I mean, not really his fault. But yeah, it's it's a heavy, heavy ending. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I think we'll enter the reductive rating round on this one. For you, Keith, this is the part where we kind of do uh, remove all the words and nuance and we uh, give the film a rating between one and five. But it's also turned into kind of like final statements. So if there's a scene yeah. that you felt like you didn't get a chance to mention or you want to mention it, you can also do it here. For me, it's probably pretty obvious. This is a this is a five for for nice. for for me. I feel like we haven't done mm-hmm. a, f- a five on a free episode in a little bit. Uh, but this one was was for me, and I think specifically because again, the way that this opens in kind of like a genre structure of a bank heist, and then subtly reveals itself to be sort of like a class and character drama, and a, a particularly melancholy and soulful one uh, at that. Uh, with you know questions of, of of class and queer struggle and pressures and stresses of a particular city, we didn't get into a lot of the New York detail of this, but the actual sort of like grit of location um, was was felt in this as uh, as well. And I mean, we'll really get into that when we talk about taking a Pelham, which mm-hmm. is uh, takes that to I think a, an even a, another level. But I think just that the way that this sort of like this conflict and 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 standoff. Um, is is structured to get you to sort of accept the people involved in it and sort of the um, 
the stresses and the complex intersection of how all of these realities kind of relate to one another and how it's resulted in this very, you know, this, this, this large symptom that everyone's very excited by. I think that media part is really important too, just yeah. because of the way everyone is so excited to be part of this. They were like, wow, this is so unique. This is so bizarre. There's that scene actually, remember they deliver food and the oh, delivery yeah. man's yeah. like, I'm a star, I'm yeah. a star. That's a great like, moment yeah, too. Yeah. Where yeah. the pizza guy, the pizza guy gets it on it. Yeah. Everyone's <laughs> so excited about, you know, it's like this just unique an event. Bizarre part of something. It's situation. I, should, let's, I, I want to zoom into that moment a little longer. Oh, yeah. Because sure. Pacino's character, he, he, he takes the marked money from the bank, the marked $5 bills, and then he uses it to pay for the pizza and then throws <laughs> the rest out to the crowd to get the crowd to love him. And they have no idea. He's just thrown a bunch of marked. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's great a moment. solid point. Well, yeah, because there's actually a part in the dialogue before where so he he's says. So he's being a bit deceptive himself. Well, yeah, because yeah. what's funny, too, is the bit where he does that before he he actually does it. He asks, where are the yeah. marked bills? Because he's going to go outside. Exactly. He's right. specifically grabbing the marked bills to go and do it. And yeah, yeah and, and, and the way that everyone kind of just reacts to this situation where everyone's watching it unfold in this kind of like exciting way and they're, you know, they start to slowly lose interest in it as the real issues and the real people and the kind of like the mundane like realities of these people's lives of poverty and sexuality and things start to actually exactly. unfold and it becomes like a really unglamorous look at these really complicated people who, you know, did a did a bad thing out of you know, complete desperation. Um, mm. And, you know, uh, in, in the end, they suffer, you know, these, these really horrible consequences um, for it. And I will make a special note again for Chris Sarandon's performance, which and I, think, I think there's only two or three scenes with Leon, and they're phenomenal. Um, yeah. Conversing with the police um, very coldly and very hurt, and then with Pacino, where it's still very hurt and heartaching, but there's a little bit more warmth to it as, yeah. you know, you can see that there's a genuine love there for Pacino's character. And then obviously Pacino in this is like complete yeah. uh, sweaty, raw nerve stuff <laughs> yeah. that is yeah. uh, as vulgar as it is charismatic and you can't look away from it um, and incredibly sad stuff. So, uh, yeah, this was a five. Pretty easy five for me. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, I'm also going to give it a five. Uh, it was funny, like I was watching the film and especially after the end, I went back and I wanted to look at a bit of the history, the real story, just to see if there was like any justification for the outright violence that the cops took on uh, Sal. Oh, yeah. uh, just you know, just to see like what the real story was. Maybe they changed a few things, and it just it, and it didn't. Like oh, it, wow. as a, a, what I could read, it seemed that that's exactly at, uh, as it played out. And th this movie just does such a great job of making you realize. It's the, you know, these the situations that people get themselves into or are just by complete happenstance um, can result in violence. And, th and there's not much you well, can... Well, I, I think the big thing is that these people have really complicated lives and the idea of a police force answering that is that right. they only well, they, they, it's a very simplistic response right. of, and and we stop that, bad guys from doing things but that response doesn't work in a situation right. where you're dealing with complex human lives and what I found interesting too was the 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 use of like when they were just talking when mm -hmm. it was the cop and Pacino even though the cop is manipulating him there's still an element of humanity there right mm -hmm. and as soon yeah. as that FBI guy comes in it's just cold 
Oh, you know, yeah. it's like it's just like a robot that he's that he's uh, connecting with, and because well, he's miss, dealing, he's dealing up, with a fellow New Yorker. Right, you end up missing that <laughs> cop. <laughs> like you're like, bring that yeah. guy back. Like you know, like at least he was a a human being trying mm. to connect with somebody, and just to see such a, a a raw human story and with what seems to just be like a procedural killing is, oh. is really really disheartening and sad um and it just it, it does a masterful job of of making you um empathize with these characters mm-hmm. and then unfortunately <laughs> making you feel losing extremely them. Yeah. depressed about losing them yeah absolutely but yeah so it's a five it's unreal for you keith all right, so for sure a five-star movie for me, yeah. I came into it, because I've seen it, um, this is, I think, the third time I've seen it, and the last time was maybe 10 years ago. So I was watching it, and um, I was prepared for it not to be a five-star movie, because I was like, you know, a lot. I watch a lot of these movies that deal with social issues in the past, and and there's always some horrible misstep they take that, that just makes it impossible for me to love the movie. Uh, and this movie, I mean, to think of a movie from the, the mid-70s that deals with a, a trans love story like at the heart of it and that it handles it so um, humanly and, and, and feels like it would be current today is, is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that might wrap it up for Dog Day Afternoon and we are going to be right back and we are going to be talking the taking of Pelham 123, not the Tony Scott version. <laughs> How long does it take to get all that money together anyway? Just not going to make it. We'll never make it. The passengers are dead ducks. What the hell do they expect for that lousy 35 cents to live forever? Walter Matthau, Robert Shaw. The most spectacular hijack in history. The taking of Pelham. One, two, three. All right, we are back and we are talking the taking of Pelham. One, two, three. It is a uh, nineteen seventy-four American sort of uh, thriller film directed by uh, Joseph Sargent, who we have actually talked about once before on the show. Uh, when we did our Burt Reynolds double feature, we talked White Lightning. Yeah, that was um, great. Which we were uh, actually very impressed with Joseph Sargent's sort of like uh, competent journeyman work on that one as he kind of took over the film from Spielberg, who at one point I think was in production for that. And he did a really good job on it. And so this is our second one time talking about Joseph Sargent. And the boy Dunn did it again. <laughs> he took a very... Uh, you know, sort of uh, workman approach. This one, I think, particularly even more um, effective, mostly because this film itself is about a bunch of sort of workmen. And this is a, this yeah. is one of my all-time favorite subgenres of people doing their job cinema. I just love <laughs> yeah. this stuff. I don't really I know. I don't know what it is about it. I just I really find watching people who are, you know, good at what they do in their natural environment that they are in every day, and maybe they have to deal with a particular crisis situation, but they're equipped to do it because they're there every day. Yeah, um, I agree. I really like movies like that, and this also follows uh, along with my current theory that I've been workshopping for a few weeks now, that if the movie's got a train, it gets upgraded to cinema. That's just how <laughs> it works. <laughs> it's got a train in it. So this one immediately hits with a double whammy. We got Joseph Sargent, we got guys doing their jobs, and we got a train. And we got a train. Yep. Uh, a recipe for a masterpiece. And it's great. 
this has a very simple premise to it and a bunch of uh, recognizable uh, um, working actors doing a bunch of the roles. Uh, and it is about a New York City heist where a bunch of armed men hijack a subway car and they demand ransom for the passengers. And what unfolds is exactly that. The logistics yeah. of how that would work, who would be uh, dealing with it, um, how they might actually perhaps get away with it. Um, and I found this film really, I mean, we'll, we'll jump off the start probably by saying that in comparison to Dog Day Afternoon, this Very is probably cool. less of a character drama. Yeah, it's in more the sense plot of, heavy. Yes, a little bit more plot heavy. I mean, it's not to say that it's without character. I think a oh, lot no. of these actors and a lot of these moments, they do get personalities. Mm-hmm. But Absolutely. the film is definitely more of an ensemble film um, of the just logistics of how something like this would go down and how it would work. Yeah. Uh, with a lot of and New I w- York I would say this is a funnier movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I would say that the sort of farcical elements of Dog Day Afternoon with the, when the heist goes wrong are pretty funny. But beyond yeah. that, that movie very quickly transitions into some real subjects that that yeah. hurt your soul a little bit. Yeah, this one kind of keeps a tone throughout rather than doing that 180 switch on you. Yes, I, I, I do like that it, it wasn't completely um, uh, that it, it's still sort of functionally as an overall piece does kind of portray kind of like a, a, a New York City still in crisis. I mean, oh, yeah. the, the, I mean, I was very say, gritty. For yeah, sure. well, this came out in the period, obviously, when there was obviously um, rising co- crime rates and, and poverty and things yeah. like this, that a lot of a lot of filmmakers uh, turned around and made some pretty dire films about these subjects. Uh, I'm pretty sure Death Wish came out the same year, oh, <laughs> which yeah. tackles a very New York yeah. grit, but without the sense of um, sort of camaraderie. That's a film about <laughs> fantasizing about going around killing poor people Just killing uh, because you yeah. want to. Uh, whereas this film actually does kind of have a sense of look at the day-to-day people on the ground of uh, a city that is sort of, you know, marked with corruption and, and problems that people have. I mean, part of the reason this heist unfolds in the first place is, again, uh, one of the guys involved is a laid-off uh, MTA worker <laughs> yeah right um who's who's just looking to pay his bills and then obviously a lot of the people who are dealing with the crisis themselves um i'm thinking particular like walter walter matthouse uh lieutenant garber i mean that's just a guy who comes into work every day he's reliable at his job and now he's dealing with an extraordinary situation i love that one guy who keeps getting on his back every time he's like why are you even <laughs> dealing with these guys like i wouldn't even talk just to let guys. me run the train yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like dude if you were responsible for human life you would be a little bit more empathetic in this situation <laughs> yeah for real <laughs> um but yeah it sees uh, a bunch of armed men take over a car filled with a very uh, diverse and emblematic group of New Yorkers yeah. who kind of fit every single facet of New York. Uh, <laughs> and I was a little concerned because I thought they were kind of just going to be caricatures, but I was surprised that most of them actually are just kind of very normal, reserved people who are just very scared throughout this entire movie, which does kind of bring you a little bit of shocking sadness when the violence yeah. eventually erupts in this film because mm-hmm. I was, the tone is light. Yeah. So I was not expecting the first time this movie gets violent. Uh, right. I yeah. will say that yeah. much anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. 
Um, something else I, I found interesting was how it, it seemed to me like the uh, the one guy that was negotiating with the cops the entire time. Yeah, I think it's 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 Robert Shaw. I think is right. is playing Mister Blue. Obviously, Quint from from yeah. Jaws. Yeah, and I was yes. also just a, as a little side note here, the Mister Blue, Mister Green thing. I another yeah, Tarantino yeah. thing that I was. Oh just like, yeah, I mean oh, this movie. You stole another thing. Yeah, <laughs> no. I mean there's a t- I mean even Big just the general approach to how the the gang operate with each other and how they don't really all totally know each other it's completely lifted uh for reservoir dogs yeah this movie. yeah no ab- ab- absolutely um and especially because each one kind of has their own uh personality of how involved they are in it i mean there's the one guy who's like the obvious loose cannon that they're like this guy i think is here just to kill people <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah uh we don't really know why we brought this guy <laughs> our bad <laughs> Um, and then obviously you have, um, I think it's, uh, it's Martin Balsam, right? Who plays Mr. Green, the guy from 12 Angry Men and Psycho and all the president's men. I mean, he's in like right. everything got on the waterfront. I'm pretty sure he's in too. Um, and he, he gets the great, obviously final scene with, 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 uh, Walter Matthau. Um, and he is the sort of like ex MTA worker who has the knowledge that got them down in, in the trains where they have stopped a car. And they are holding, I believe it's, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20 people hostage. And they're demanding, yeah. like, Dr. Evil style, like, $1 million. And they were like, bring it bring it to us now. Um, and I just love that this, the way that this movie moves. I was, um, in, in, in terms of the filmmaking and in terms of, I, I mean, I, I assume it's in the script as well, the way that they sort of construct these scenes where it's constantly moving from, like, the train to the control room to the cops up top to the cops uh, down below in the tunnels to yeah. the mayor's office. Showing um, all aspects of the heist. Which well, is- and, and scenes will be constructed to like move between them within like seconds. Like you'll have them having, you know, a conversation on the train where he's giving his demands back to the control room where he's like, Oh God, we got to, I got to figure out how to make that demand possible to all of a sudden to a call to a different control room. Yeah. Where they're calling, you know, another Lieutenant where they're calling the, you know, the mayor's office guy where they're talking to the mayor, trying to coordinate it all. Um, and just seeing, I think he's trying to highlight kind of just kind of, uh, I mean, Overall, they end up kind of actually solving the situation, but I, I kind of felt like there was a humor with a sense of ineptitude to the way that these things are run and the way that these people are not built to respond or communicate with each other in a way that's actually helpful to the situation. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Everything feels incredibly sporadic and unplanned <laughs> and just like they've, they've definitely never had any type of protocol to deal with this uh, situation. <laughs> And I think that is like touching on the editing there. Like it, it is interesting that I, I didn't intentionally do this at all, but but both of these movies are edited by two of the best editors of all time. Because you know, Dog Day Afternoon is edited by Dee Dee Allen, who did Bonnie and Clyde, The Hustler, Slapshot, The Breakfast Club, oh Adam's nice. Family. I mean, like amazing. And then Taking a Pelham is is um, is Jerry Greenberg, who did The French Connection, Apocalypse Now, Kramer vs. Kramer. I mean, it's Jesus. like um, <laughs> these 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 people know how to cut a movie. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jerry Greenberg what a also resume. De Palma's. He did Scarface and Body Devil. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. No, no, no. It's, it's, and, and, the, and the DP of this movie shot uh, like Network, Tootsie, The French Connection, The Exorcist. I mean, it's like, Holy it's pretty crazy the above the line. Um, I mean, the, 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 the department had talent on these movies. Yeah. It's amazing yeah. to watch something that's just such a simple premise that like, you know, is, is deepened by just having skilled filmmakers like apply 
things that make, yeah. would make you actually feel the experience of this. Again, the way yeah. that they make you feel the line of communication and then the claustrophobic nature of, you know, actually being in the tunnels and then sort of like the the kind of uh, workers in crisis mode yeah. of, yeah. Of, 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 of sweatiness and freaking out and shouting. And I mean, this even more so than Dog Day Afternoon has more New York goddamn accents where they just oh, yeah. goddamn and swear and freak out at each other yeah. uh, all the goddamn time. It feels like everyone is like one second away from knocking the next person out. It doesn't oh, yeah. matter who it is. <laughs> and it feels the thing with both these movies I, I love about that era of 1970s New York is like there's no way for anything not to feel grimy. It's just oh, like yeah. anything you look at felt grimy. Like the airport at the end of Dog Day Afternoon still felt grimy. Like everything is just that era. Everything was dirty. Yeah. Well, in particular, in this in this movie, I, w- I mentioned that there was kind of like great location detail Dog Day Afternoon. But in this, when they shot in the subway, they did get yeah. permission to shoot in the M- in the MTA. Although oh, cool. they had to sign a two million dollar insurance agreement or something. Yes. that because they said we don't want like this hasn't happened before, and we don't want your movie inspiring people to do this. Oh uh, to me, yeah. To me, the funniest part about the MTA thing is that they. They insisted that they couldn't show any graffiti on the train cars. <laughs> they did that uh, for because, a lot of movies. They did that in Death yeah. Wish too. We mentioned that on our Death Wish episode. That's they did that hilarious. too. But, but I love that the MTA's reasoning is that they thought it was a fad that would be over in a year or two, and the graffiti would go away, and they didn't want to encourage it because it was it was almost eradicated. <laughs> it's almost gone. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. As we all know, graffiti doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. We're I mean, in a graffitiless yeah, world. We're here in 2019. <laughs> Um, oh, but yeah, they were saying that the onset work, I mean, it's, they probably wouldn't get away with this anymore. It was probably unsafe working conditions <laughs> working down there in the tunnels shooting yeah. this movie. But they say that that actually shooting down there, that like they couldn't clean it up. They were like there were rats. There were like it was just the dirtiest possible uh, like shooting location that they could have filmed. And they have them all sitting down there. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, the entire time. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's it, it's it's pretty gross to look at. And then the way that obviously it also traces kind of that kind of grime all the way up the sort of political office, all the way to the mayor. I love exactly. the scenes with the, the mayor. mayor yeah. is amazing. And every yeah. scene, once again, it's like uh, what we were speaking with, with uh, the dog day afternoon with these cops that are just focus more on their optics yeah it's like the entire yeah. time he's just focused on like well you got a re-election coming up you're gonna have to go out and look like you care man yeah, <laughs> yeah. and then he's homesick like just with this streaming cold is like this character choice is is brilliant yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah well and, and an amazing like kind of like he's like like uh helpless and isn't going to help at all like well, he's just yeah. incapable. and the thing i love about that detail is it connects him with the robbers because there's the one yes. robber who also has the cold right so yeah. it, it, it just yeah. it just implicitly ties these scenes to you together to be like these guys are actually in the same place despite the fact yeah. that like none of these people ever end up interacting with each other beyond yeah. what we see on the camera that's pretty yeah, amazing they're all just too, is that yeah. in the filmmaking here you have a tricky thing to figure out that all of these people um, are communicating to one other character via the phone, but a, a lot of these people yeah. aren't contacting each other. Like, there's no con, there's no connection between the robbers and the mayor. There's a line of communication where the mayor's assistant talks to one of the, the lieutenants, yeah, the lieutenants the, who talks yeah. to one of the control room guys who talks to the other control room guy yeah. who talks to the robbers. So, like, th- needless to say, trust is difficult to develop in that circumstance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I feel like you're watching a cinematic game of broken telephone happening, <laughs> yeah. and it is 
it is genuinely enthralling to watch it happen because of the speed of way the way that this moves the plot along. And that's something also that that I mean, so Peter Stone, who wrote this, also wrote Charade, which is another brilliant screenplay. And um, and he excels at keeping the pace moving really fast, but still giving you an enormous amount of character detail um, and and kind of laugh out loud humorous moments that are actually saying something. But some of these things are like two line exchanges. Like I know there's a point where the two cops that are actually bringing the money to them the one cop, look, we, I don't think we see the, these actors at any prior time. One of them picks up the bag and goes, this is a million dollars. The other <laughs> guy goes, it's what it buys, not what it weighs. Uh, <laughs> which is such like a brilliant two-line thing about like this this understanding of like how much money is in this bag of uh, uh, they're carrying around the, the, the city. Yeah, I, another great line when the, they're talking about like the value or and, and the money, I believe one of the hostages is like, Oh, you guys are getting money for this. So, so how much am I worth? And then the guy's like a million dollars, and he's like, "That's not so terrific." <laughs> Just speaking on, it's like you guys are doing this all. Like, I value my human life. You're doing it for a yeah. million dollars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there, there's lots of great just like um, sort of like writerly interactions between like individual characters. So even if yeah. you only see them for a scene, you feel like you're just like that's a person who works that job every day, who has, you exactly. know, who is a real human person, basically. Right. And they, they, they pepper that the, the entire film like this, which I actually find kind of moving because mm-hmm. this ends up becoming kind of just like a people on the ground working people movie where it's about all of them as an ensemble dealing with like this, you know, this, the, this horrible situation. I mean, the villain is, uh, I mean, particularly the villain anyway, overall is Robert Shaw's character who is kind of like this really dispassionate British mercenary yeah. killer. Yeah. <laughs> well, which He's we should talk about. This is, cops, right? So I think that that clearly this movie influenced Reservoir Dogs a lot, but I think the movie that it influenced the most, and I would say it probably wouldn't exist without this movie, is Die Hard. Oh, because 100%. Die Hard, Die Hard yeah, is basically call. this movie, except in a skyscraper, and they've inserted a hero that shows up to to stop the the heist. Yeah, but like yeah. the whole dynamic between how the heist works, how the, like the criminals plan, how their plan relies on the cops reacting a certain way, and how the cop and and, and like all of the, how that stuff interacts is the mechanics of Die Hard, but then also the the humor, the sense of humor, and the way they approach the the character humor, and that it's it's so much the DNA of the movie. No, you're 100. percent I yeah. actually wrote down the exact same movie. That and Speed. Oh, two movies that sure. would yeah, those two movies would not exist <laughs> without the taking of Pelham one two three. So it's awesome to go back and you know and and see the people who did like the original construction of something yeah. like this because you really do watch this and you're like I don't think at this time there's any other movie that looks like this or moves like this between scenes because like mm. it has to cover so much geography, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. and and so much like dense character action. Um, in such a short amount of time um, that also uh, implicitly as a viewer you're watching that you kind of get swept up in it but it also sets the stakes because you know that you're watching uh, you know a time you're, you're on a time clock to get this money there in the first place and yeah. I mean I loved I mean I love when a lot of movies do this just in general when someone t- thinks up a concept of like okay we need we, we demand a million dollars and they're like okay we will try to get you that one million dollars 
and that this just walks you through like the physical, literal logistics of how to move $1 million (laughs) from where you're pulling it from to them in that amount of time. And the amount of drama they ring out of people just being like, where are we taking it? How are we getting yeah. it there? And then I love the two cops who are eventually driving it in the back of the car being like, we got 28 blocks for Florida. We're going to make it. And then he immediately hangs up the thing and he's like, we're not going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, 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 uh, obviously that, that climaxes with this great thing where they almost hit a dude, uh, just a random, again, another New York detail of a guy riding his bike with his headphones on or whatever. They almost hit him. They roll over and crash and your heart just like sinks into your chest. You're like, no. Because you just know there's no hope after that. Yeah, they're going to, like, they have no chance now. They're going to totally kill someone down there. And they, Uh, and that in this movie, you you know that these guys will kill those sausages. Oh yeah. Because like, of that one scene. Like, like exactly. At most movies with a, with a tone like this, with humor and stuff like this, you, you don't really believe that anyone's going to get hurt. This movie manages to, to balance real stakes and real jeopardy with a, really a very, very funny, um, entertaining screenplay and, and performance style. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of yeah. Im- implied it before, but that one scene where the cop moves forward and he's just like, and I mean, God, you got to love him. Another great, just goddamn New Yorker. He's walking through. He's like, hey, you won't shoot me. I'm, I'm coming up <laughs> yeah. there. I'm yeah. coming to you. And he's like, dude, I'm going to, I swear to God, I'm, I'm going to fucking do it, shoot bro. you. <laughs> I'm letting yeah. you know. <laughs> and he just totally, bl- he totally calls his bluff and just boom, uh, yeah. uh, shoots him away. And it's pretty gruesome. Um, yeah. And yeah, that, that really does set up the, this, the importance of the sequence where they're moving the, the money and when the car flips. And I believe and, that's the first kill yeah, too, right so that's where it really sets that stage where it's like these guys are going to do what yeah. they told so you that's, that do. really makes you feel it when that when yeah. those car those cops don't get there in time although i do love that walter matthow is just like wow Comes i'm up an with idiot that plan right yeah away. i mean he's like i'm an idiot i could just tell them it's here he's like the money's <laughs> yeah. here the money's yeah. here <laughs> they don't know they can't see <laughs> yeah and Again, I love that too, where it's like there's you know there's smart people on both sides of this yes. negotiation and they're actually in a cat and mouse with each other is, is great and very rare. It's it's actually surprisingly rare because you think that would be the whole point of a negotiation scene, but it's actually very rarely works that way in movies. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, completely invaluable. I have the I have the same note. Like the idea of two people clashing and outmaneuvering each other when they're both smart people is like really, really important for you to actually buy into what's happening at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I mean, these two, I mean, talk about clashing personalities of professionalism too, <laughs> where one is like just a just cold, cold cruelty and the other one's got like more of like a sardonic, like sense of humor to him, but yeah. also yeah. He's like poking fun at the situation almost the entire time. It seems. Yeah. yeah. No, Walter, Walter Matt has incredible in this film. Yeah. Um, I, I think if anyone kind of steals the screen, um, from anybody else, because it does largely play as an ensemble film where there's not really, you know, clear if, if there is a, a protagonist star. to the film, yeah. it's probably Walter Matthau. And I mean, he also gets yeah. the amazing final closing shot of the film, which we'll probably get to here <laughs> we soon. We will get to. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I would just say the way that this captures kind of like a, the, the quick thinking energy of, you know, like working people in crisis um, and is a movie populated with just like the most quintessential cinematic New Yorkers I've just ever seen. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but also manages to fit in like, um, you know, critiques of sort of like systemic communication between these, you know, these different institutions as like they are clearly poorly managing the situation. Um, and it, it even again, once again, and it, it, it brings up Vietnam and that one of the guys is the Vietnam vet um, yeah. who they who, who they beat. 
Um, and it's, it's interesting that they can sort of like crack jokes about all of this stuff, but also have the backdrop of like very serious subject matter and you not like lose the texture of that threat and that violence. Um, but you also, this movie does just fucking breeze by. Like I was sitting there watching it and I was like, this is just a lot of fun. Yeah, which yeah. which feels odd at times yeah. when we're talking about you know this the, a, a a police officer being gunned down at point blank range. I don't know. I feel like everyone just immediately empathize, empathizes with like disgruntled yes. and like grumpy working employees. Yeah. I feel like everyone's been there. <laughs> yeah. We've all had a bad day. And I think just by the time you get to that part of the movie, you already know you're in such capable tonal hands that you mm. you know it's not gonna screw up that stuff you know yeah like you, you're you're willing to give it uh a, 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 the benefit of the doubt that this is going to work even though they're they're taking something that would normally be extremely hard to watch and making it um you know have a sense of humor to it yeah absolutely yeah like, i mean they even have a gag to start off that uh that gunfight um that the cops start shooting at them and they have mm-hmm. the uh the one cop that's been standing in the middle between the the subway tunnel and the subway train. Like imagining and, the standoff. Right, and he does that little finger gun thing, and as he does yeah. the finger gun, the actual shot goes <laughs> off. Yeah. And then, but that also, that's a that's a funny gag, but then that sparks them having to kill, I believe it's the conductor, because they said yeah. rules are rules. If We said if you shoot oh, at yeah. us, we're killing that's a true. hostage. We're gonna, exactly. So I, once again, they're balancing that tone where it's like they start with a gag and then end with a, a pretty horrifying death. Yeah, there's like a there, there's yeah. just there's a real like like ticking time bomb seat of your pants kind of energy that just like pummels yeah. this whole thing. Um, but again, to mix that kind of like wry humor, but also the 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 consequences of of action at the same time, um, it it really does help when we transition into the back half of this and they start they they end up getting their hands on the money and they end up. The, the question then becomes now that we've figured out we spent like an hour figuring out the logistics of how to get the money. What the fuck are the logistics of actually getting that money out of there where they can escape? Yeah. I mean, they, yeah. they, they trapped themselves in a subway tunnel where we can <laughs> see the car at all times. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's just yeah. a, it, it. And what's interesting is that it plays that aspect up as more of a mystery um, where you kind of exactly. watch that unfold. I, lo- I love that it's that this movie takes an approach to a heist movie where you have no idea what their plan is other than watching it unfold, but mm-hmm. you know that they have a plan. And so you 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 immediately um, you immediately have to empathize with the, the, the MTA cops because they're the ones that are actually you're seeing them make the decisions and how to react to things and how to do things as opposed to in Dog Day Afternoon where because the plan goes wrong so quickly you 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 only ever really know um, you, what the cops are planning to do when you see the ramifications of it. You only see the things happening. You don't see them planning how to try to get to to um, Al Pacino's character. And yeah. then we are with Al Pacino and with the people in the bank as they're trying to figure out how to respond to what the cops are doing. So you're of course gonna gonna relate to them. And it's just so interesting between these two movies, like the 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 narrative technique of getting the audiences. Um, sympathies and relation and everything on the side of the people that are actively making decisions to try to solve a problem rather than the people that um, already are in control and have a plan for how to deal with it. 
Oh, no, ab- absolutely. And that's a really fun and engaging experience where you are trying to think ahead of characters and being like, yeah, yeah. how are they going to figure that out? What is going to happen? Yeah, exactly. um, and I mean, they, they do set it up pretty cleverly where they address the idea that there, you know, there is a dead man switch where no one can actually man a car um, without yeah. like a, an, you know, an active person with their with their hand putting a lot of pressure onto the uh, end or the gear, basically. Um, and it's it's interesting that like pretty quickly afterward I, I don't know how it is that Walter Matthau's character comes up with the thing where he's just like man remember how I told you earlier there was that thing that couldn't be done what if they did it he's like yeah. these, these goddamn guys they're so smart they, they're maniacs they might just do it yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they immediately like turn the turn the cars around and they're they're heading back for them and um, because they they have the train going at like uh, pretty goddamn fast speeds. Oh, yeah. It's uh, going well because I mean it was really smart that they set up the idea of they were like you have to keep everything green going or we kill a hostage yep. so that the train can't stop and that they think someone's on it because it's moving obviously um, so it is pretty smart and then you get uh, a pretty amazing underground shootout here where a lot of things just go wrong. I did find it funny that the guy uh, that cop just has amazing patience. That guy who yeah. was on the train the entire time. Oh, he was yeah. one of the guys who was who was like kidnapped, basically. And the second that they jump off, he also just jumps off with his gun and hides in the shadows. Um, and I mean, it's a it's a great shot where you can't see him at all in the shadows. And he's like, I just saw a guy jump off there. I swear to God, we got we got to go get him. But this final confrontation that 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 happens here is interesting because. From what I understand, they didn't originally plan it to be Walter Matthau's character, but I guess he just kind of stole the screen. But uh, he, yeah. he's the one who goes down there because he's, he's not qualified to go and like shoot uh, yeah. armed robbers or anything. Yeah. Um, but when when he goes down there, and you can see that there's like again one of my favorite things that happens in movies the kind of like begrudging respect of two professionals who think they're (laughs) good at what Mm -hmm. each other do i mean it's total heat vibes obviously when these two run into each other um and uh i i believe the one guy who's like the psychopath is the guy who gets shot right off the bat by the cop and then robert shaw shoots and am i am i correct in remembering that he's the dad from that 70s show oh shit he might be oh is it i didn't even notice notice. That would have been amazing. amazing. Yeah, the guy even, from RoboCop even, too, right? Yeah, yeah. I think I it. I think that is who Kurt, it is. I'm, you Kurt know what? Smith I'm check. Or something. Yeah. I can't remember his uh, name. But. I did not notice that, but that would be pretty amazing. I mean, this whole thing is stacked with just like recognizable faces of these yeah. of, of these guys. But yeah, this this final situate confrontation I thought was really interesting because again, it's it's another sense of they don't tell you too much about these characters, but they say just enough to reveal an entire history that you can imagine. Yeah. And that bit where Robert Shaw kills himself, where he's just like, oh, do you guys in New York still have the death penalty? And he was just like, I don't think so anymore. Uh, Either way, you're coming with me. And then he electrocutes himself to death using the rails. And the irony that he also electrocutes himself, just like, I think, doesn't he mention the chair or something like that? I thought he did. Oh, yeah. Do you guys still have the the, the chair. I thought that's what he did. Just that that irony where he's like, electrify. I'll do it myself. Um, it it brought this like, well, I guess, I guess what it was saying is that either, either he was going to be successful or he was going to die. That was essentially what it it was a very sound move, but but, 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 but with a lot more like, uh, for me, it was like a creepy, 
like control to it. It was just like, yeah. it was so dispassionate, his own suicide. Yeah. That it kind of freaked me out a little bit watching it. It really <laughs> felt planned. Like he was prepared to do it the entire time. No, ab- ab- absolutely. Cause he stares at him blankly. Like there was like, like now what are you going to do? Yeah. He, he'd much rather almost, if, if it felt like he thought that that was a win <laughs> in, in a sense where he's like, well, you didn't get me. I got myself. Um, and I was glad to see though, that that wasn't the end of the film. Because, of course, um, as, as much as, you know, Robert Shaw is a great presence in this film, he is kind of like the outsider in what is what does feel like a sort of like working New York people's movie. Yeah. Um, so I love this. What <laughs> feels like an epilogue to the movie of uh, it is. Sorry, I forget. I forget who's what the actor's name was again. Um, yeah. So it's, it's Martin Balsam's character, Mr. Green who ends up escaping with his share of the money that he's going to go get. And he is obviously been laid off by the MTA and, you know, you can tell that his apartment is pretty shitty uh, and that he's really excited to, you know, have money. And he, I mean, the moment of just pure joy when he's like jumping on the bed with the money and everything like that, he's real excited. (laughs) Um, And Walter Matthau and uh, goddamn Jerry Stiller, who we haven't mentioned, but Jerry (laughs) Stiller is is amazing. He's so good. (laughs) I was like, is that Maury Ballstein from, <laughs> from Zoolander <laughs> the whole time? But this this sequence where these guys are like, hey, man, we're just asking questions. We're just doing our job. You're probably not our guy. Like, and But he couldn't look more goddamn suspicious. <laughs> yeah, he put the, He put the money in the oven and he, <laughs> he, he just he has to like um, antagonize them. I feel like every time they were like, OK, we're leaving. And he was like, hey, stop harassing like, you know. People, I'm just here trying to make a living, trying to live my life. I've been in my apartment all day. Yeah, like, yeah. fuck you guys. Like, he's making a big show of it. Like, classic goddamn New Yorker. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Walter Matthau is like, fine, we're getting the hell out of here. We're getting the hell out of here. But earlier in the film, and this is important to mention, while he's talking on the phone, because Walter Matthau, you got to love him. He's talking on the phone with Mr. Blue, Robert Shaw. And I think it's during the interaction where he's like, you have... 48 minutes come on dude like are you have 49 minutes he's like come on we need more time you have 49 minutes he's like can you stop saying that he's like you have 48 minutes yeah. <laughs> um it's martin balsam characters i believe he sneezes over the radio yeah yeah and walter madhouse says kazuntite because he's just <laughs> it's polite yeah and that's what he yeah. does it's just it's, it's a, a character detail he's just polite and it's a in the moment it's just a very funny moment you don't think it's a thing you know it's yeah just, yeah. Well, yeah, because it's, it's just a, it's another small detail to this where you're like, yeah, why would you be saying Gesundheit to one of the armed robbers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as he's leaving the apartment, the guy's gotten away with it. He's got all the money in the oven. He's ready. He's done. He can't hold that sneeze. He just can't. He sneezes and he hears it as he's closing the door and he goes Gesundheit. Yeah. And then he's like. Yeah, light bulb. And, and then I love he he IDs him from his sneeze is amazing. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. And, and the then face that he makes the oh best my final God. shot, like one ever. of the best final he, shots. It's literally just one of those. I, it's hard to explain, but it's a I got you, motherfucker. Yeah. And it's such a yeah, it's sly. Like, it's like a, almost like a Columbo kind of like. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, mad Columbo yeah. vibes. And also though, I felt like a, a sense of like it's the end of the day and everyone's had a rough day, and he's kind of like. It's over. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can, we, we got it. We got you. 
Yeah, there's all it's it's just it's such a great moment and to know that that's the place to end your movie on is so rare sometimes too. I felt like they could have yeah. even cut to like Mr. Green going, "Oh man." <laughs> you know, like a little like a shrug. <laughs> oh my god. It's such a classic ending. My god. And just yeah. such a for such a heavy film in regards to, you know, what it's what it's doing with like the its stakes violence were pretty and heavy, the stakes yeah. are heavy. Uh, obviously, tonally, it's nothing like uh, Dog Day Afternoon, but uh, t- just to end on that little, it's it's like a, it's it's a joke. It literally is a yeah. gag that they end on. Well, do you know what? Very... Do you know what that got? And I mean, this goes for the humor for a lot of the film. What I kind of got from that was that I feel like this is just them. You know, this is like a city plagued sometime. You know, with 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 corruption and poverty and you know rising violence. And I felt like this was like the working person's this is how you stay sane living in this place is by having this attitude by having this you know this kind of like uh i mean it kind of like predates that kind of like irony but it almost it almost does feel like everyone's kind of just in like a constant state of if i don't joke about some of this stuff like i'm gonna go fucking crazy with how much stress i'm under and like and 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 it what's interesting is that it extends that not just to people in a crisis situation it feels like it extends that to like every minor character who we see in this film feels like they're just having just an awful day and that you know you, you think you get to the end of the day where he's got his money and he just he can't he can't even have that he can't yeah. have it his face just no, it's, and it's to, such i mean no, I it really is it. i i do find that this is the in terms of capturing a certain type of new yorker persona like this is the best movie that does it i mean it really is like that that kind of blue collar working man new york feeling is yeah. yeah yeah no it totally feels like it like it, it it's come alive in this movie um and maybe the one moment, one moment oh, I do yeah. love in it is is also how you know Walter Matthau is dealing with the cops via the phone the whole time, and then when he finally leaves and goes to see the cop that he's been dealing with the whole time, he sees that it's a black cop, and he clearly, clearly never pictured that in his head, <laughs> and his and he and is his performance and the way it's written this moment, he's just like, oh, I thought you were. I thought you would have been shorter, <laughs> and, just like, and then they move on, and you see the black cop who's like. Yeah, I'm sure that's what you thought. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a brilliant moment. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that is good. No, yeah, that we could we could probably do a whole thing about just how peppered this is with details. I mean, I particularly loved the bit about the mayor where he's he's having like this 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 quandary about what he's going to do, and he's asking like all his different assistants, and he's just like, well, you got an election, but also you can't deal with you know like terrorists, or you know you can't do the you know all these juggling all these things, and the one and realizing where, it's not about the human lives at all. No, yeah. And the, and the one moment where she's just like, well, you could look at it one way, 18 guaranteed voters. <laughs> and, and, and she says it like with such a cynical attitude. Yeah. And the best part is the mayor's reaction. Who's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like he takes it genuinely and he looks back at her and no joke. He fucking goes, I forget exactly what his wording is, but he goes, I think we handled that well. And and, and she is just like in awe that he did not pick up on that she like was being in charge. like she was being a cynical asshole in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> and then to see that that decision work through the chain of command as they finally, you know, actually start moving the money that that's what finally gets them to start moving the money and why the you know, what him his quandary is why they're late at all with Yeah. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
All right. Well, I think we'll enter the reductive rating round and final statements on this one. This one got a pretty pretty easy uh, four from me. I mean, I I think the thing that's particularly not- notable about this is, I mean, a couple things that we've, we've already said, the idea of like sort of like two clashing professional smart people mm-hmm. um, and also the fact that this is just the kind of movie that doesn't have a like any like beautiful movie stars. This really does feel kind yeah. of like a bunch of like character actors that Absolutely. would actually resemble working people. Uh, you know, tr- uh, we got we got transit workers. We have sort of like, you know, we have uh, small time cops. We have, you know, assistants to the mayor's office. You have all these kind of different people. I mean, I, I still just can't believe that detail of that guy riding his bike in front of traffic, even though there's a whole line of people <laughs> like blocking it, like knowing that there's a, something happening. Everyone's watching to see what's happening. And that one guy just oblivious riding his bike, having a great day. Yeah. You got to love that. That's and- the most the most New York attitude is that this is my street. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yeah i think the way that this again just juggles like a real grit and texture of a 70s new york in a cru- in a corrupt city um with, with with violence and the way that it translates that into something that's you know that has real attitude and a real sense of of, of fun and humor to it that really does capture the feeling of this is an incredibly stressful period of time. This is an incredibly stressful class to be in. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it takes a lot uh, to handle that. And I feel like this eventually, as it moves across all these different people, it kind of just becomes an ode to a collective of working people, which is, you know, a kind of a kind of movie that always appeals to me. I mean, yeah. um, uh, uh, Recently, I think it was uh, not crazy about all of his recent stuff, but that movie Sully that Clint Eastwood did with Tom Hanks. I got a similar vibe from that where it was just kind of like doing something extraordinary, like moving cash from, you know, the logistics of moving cash that fast. Doing something extraordinary like that is really just a collective of ordinary people. Right. Um, So I got a similar feel from from this. And to me, that's honestly a genuinely kind of uh, moving idea. Um, and the fact that, again, this movie is just filmed with lean, economical filmmaking that moves you through this with like uh, at a breakneck pace and contains the bare minimum of necessary information. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as a friend of the show, Will Sloan, critic in, in Toronto, pointed out, he felt that it kind of res- the, the bare minimum of information kind of resembled that everyone is just kind of a cog in a larger machine. And I thought that yeah. was just a really good way of uh, putting how what I think that they capture here and. Before I go, one last note. It was noted by, uh, uh, in, in a Toronto interview, the producer of the film said that this film did absolutely gangbusters at the box office in New York, Toronto, London, Paris, cities with subways. Oh, uh, okay. And absolutely nowhere else. Nobody fucking gave a shit because who cares about a, a subway? subway? Yeah. That's not That's realistic. <laughs> And I'll never I thought be that, that was situation. just an amazing detail. Who would who would go underground anyway? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why are y'all traveling underground? It's only going to cause problems. <laughs> we know this. That's why we don't have underground These big subways. city folk. Exactly. So yeah, easy four for me for you. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, uh, easy four for me as well. It's really it's just like watching the procedure. You know, th- this film was just so much fun to watch unravel. Uh, seeing um, seeing the cops, you know, go from from just throughout the uh the the hierarchy of of everything they had to go through going through uh you know their their um even the way the camera superiors. moves through that control room and stuff yeah oh absolutely <laughs> yeah and and it what i like too is the the cops themselves are always kind of poking fun at each other and 
you know, we had that, you mentioned it earlier when they had the one guy who's like, why are you even dealing with the terrorists and things yeah, like oh, that? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. it's just all American guy. Just yeah. let him go, apparently. Um, but yeah, I just, I loved watching the procedure. And uh, that's what this, this film does masterfully. So uh, yeah, I'm going to give it a four out of five. Yeah. For you, Keith. Uh, I would I would give it a four. I'm going to knock it up to a four point five just nice. because the the score is so amazing, which we didn't really touch on. But the uh, David Shire did the score, um, and it's I think it's one of my favorite scores from the '70s because it yeah. has that sort of jazz thing oh, that yeah. they were kind of trying to play with in the '70s, but does it in this like really unique way where it's trying to like almost only be the bass notes and the high end notes so it doesn't get swallowed up by the the sound of the the train and i just think it's like an incredibly smart and well constructed score so to me that gives that little extra boost that would put it up to the four and a half for me nice nice well i think that that will wrap it up for the goddamn mayor of goddamn new york city (laughs) (laughs) uh that was the taking of Pelham one, two, three, as well as dog day afternoon. Uh, Keith, thanks so much for, for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much. And bringing these films with you. We had a great time. Um, this is the part of the show where if you've got anything to plug, you can do it here. And from what I understand with (laughs) amazing timing, you just had a film announced yesterday. (laughs) I did. That's still (laughs) a long way away in terms of making it, but I do have, uh, a, a, a couple movies coming out soon. I have corporate animals, uh, and Little Monsters, both of which are, are fun movies that were at Sundance early this year and come out in the next couple of months. Sweet. Very cool. We'll look out for them. Absolutely. Um, I think in one week's time uh, from us, for you guys, patrons, you guys are going to get your bonus episode. Uh, you are going to hear us. We just got out of Midsummer. Uh, we, <laughs> we had a great time a watching flick. it. I mean, I th- I'm assuming by the time you guys hear this, it's been out for, I think, a week or two. So you hopefully yeah. got, you guys have seen it. But while browsing through the opinions on Midsummer, I realized that a lot of people are not as well vo- versed in folk horror as I thought people were. Um, Jamie and I, obviously, we've done some deep cuts folk horror on this before. We've done The Blade on mm. Satan's Claw. We've done Hammer Horror films like Captain Kronos. Um, so we decided we were going to do some uh, The Big One because we haven't done it yet. The Wicker Man, 1973, oh, is going to be your one. bonus episode. Oh, yeah. um, and also my personal favorite, and I think the most underrated of the folk horror films, and that's Witchfinder General from 1968. Uh, I love a Vincent Price With an amazing Vincent Price performance. Yeah. An absolutely like grim, sadistic um, film yeah. <laughs> about uh, wielding political power in times of chaos, uh, especially in the 17th century witch-burning Britain. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you can imagine that that goes some places. Um, and, but in two weeks time, we're going to be back with a guest and we're going to be talking, uh, <laughs> two films. I again, haven't seen these guests. They're killing me. <laughs> we're going to be Good doing thing. Bill and Ted's bogus adventure. Beautiful. 1991. And we're going to be pairing it with another Excellent. 1991 film called world apartment horror. I asked this guy for a deep cut, uh, one that, and uh, only a hundred people have logged it on letterbox. So I'm, I assume that's what it is, but it's, uh, uh, Yetsuhiro Otomo the uh, writer and director behind Akira. So good. Uh, I believe it's either his first and maybe his only live action film from 1991. Oh, cool. cool. So that's what you guys can expect for your free episode in two weeks time. Uh, that being said, I think that will wrap it up for this week. Thanks as always for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. <laughs> yeah. We Nailed it. it. We, all, we, we, all, we, we always wait for it because... We never know. We, Number two. Number two, yeah.